1: I'm Katherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week our year is 1930, and our book is Civilization and Its Discontents by Sigmund Freud. I'll be discussing it with Jessica Gross. Her nonfiction has appeared in New York Times Magazine, Paris Review Daily, and other places, and she's also the author of the novel Hysteria, which is about a young woman's relationship with Freud, so you can imagine how glad I was when she agreed to come and talk to me for this episode. Um, for a summary of the text, it's, um, it's from pretty late in Freud's career, and he makes reference to a lot of his earlier ideas about developmental experiences um, that people have in the course of growing up defining their later psychological states. But he puts that into a context of um, just the uh, construction of civilization and the difficulty of living as an individual in society how society asks each of us to repress some amount of our true natures to um, live around one another safely. All right. (laughs) I hope that all makes sense. Um, On to our conversation. So what was your original relationship with Freud's work? Like you have written a book about a novel about a woman's relationship with Freud, but what's your relationship with Freud?
0: So I, um, Started seeing a therapist in my very early 20s, which I didn't know anything about the different kinds of therapy. I, I really truly don't think I had heard much about psychoanalysis or really knew what it was. But it turned out that this woman who I happened to relate to as a therapist was a psychoanalyst. And I really got into it. I started seeing her more often. It became its own analysis. And as I was um seeing her in my personal life, I also started reading Freud, um, on the side, kind of trying to get an intellectual handle on the theory and, um, you know, like pick and choose the parts that like related to my brain in my mind. Um, so yeah. And then I, maybe it was 10 years ago. Yeah. 2010, something like that. I took a, a, a course at the new school, from uh, a professor named Alan Bass, who's a Freud scholar and started kind of learning a little bit more in a more regimented way. And of course did my own research for Hysteria, a novel that I wrote, which contains a version of Freud um, as imagined up by the narrator. So yeah, it's been a kind of like I love um, on and off reading experience over the past decade or so.
1: I would say, so, what are the ideas from this this particular text, the um, civilization is discontents that feel most resonant or interesting to you? I think it
0: is so, I mean, the thing that I really admire about so much of Freud's writing is the way that he um, not only builds upon the ideas that he lays lays out in future parts of the text, but like keeps inverting and twisting and adding a little. Wrinkle. And so just this is not um, talking about the content so much as the fact that the the style in which he unfurls his ideas almost mimics his concept of the human mind. So um, you know, things aren't always what they seem. He lays something out and then sort of turns it on his head and is like, Well, actually, what if we understand it this way? And you know, that's that's exactly how he understands what our minds do and the ideas and feelings that they present to us. Often something contains its opposite. Something is converted into another form that we can deal with more comfortably or into another form that persecutes us. Um, But I, so in terms of the, the kind of, you know, ideas that he's laying out, I think, you know, the text ends up building to this concept that um, civilization asks of us that we uh basically do something with our intense aggressive instincts, our death drive that is not turning them outward against our fellow man or against um our authority figures. And so the outcome of that is that instead of being outwardly aggressive, we <laughs> turn our aggression against ourselves and develop these really intense super egos that yeah, persecute us from inside our minds. And this is the way that we are able to live discontentedly in harmony with each other, that there's a price to pay, um, for being in civilization, but there's also the gains of security. And I think that's really fascinating. Um, pretty, it feels yeah. pretty good to me.
1: I, um, I think the thing you said about how he kind of unrolls his thoughts and, the opposite of what he's saying is often contained inside what he's saying. I think one of those examples is how he talks about people as essentially solitary in a way that civilization is something we choose. Civilization is something that we make, um, that there's some different non-civilized version of people where you're more primal, you're more free. um, and he doesn't really have any evidence for that or any reason to believe it. He just asserts sort of like that human neutral is an 18 year old man who has all of the skills he needs to survive. And <laughs> and then it's only at the point that he wants to have sex that he has to sort of pursue other people. you know, that, that, mm. that he sort of has this on the one hand, this idea of um, the individual is the neutral state, but mm-hmm. then the way that he talks about human development is through babies and toddlers who are obviously extremely not in their neutral state alone. Yeah, you know, yeah. And I think that that's that's one of those it's one of the complexities of the text and one of the complexities of his thinking that there's a long uh, tradition of people, thinking about human nature with the neutral state being assumed to be a competent adult individual um which it, it just i mean maybe this is me speaking as a parent but it just seems like nonsense to me that that there's any such thing as an individual human any more than yeah. there's like an individual ant <laughs> an individual ant isn't a, a way of understanding ant nature yeah. nor is an individual person a way of understanding human nature, he's not stopping there because he's incredibly interested in how people learn who they are in relation to others mm-hmm. through childhood and through through experiences, which in its own way is one of the things that I keep running into when I'm reading 20th century texts for this mm-hmm. podcast is um, I don't think that there's the same idea that traits come from experiences all the way through 19th century fiction, mm-hmm. like um, that there isn't necessarily uh, I mean, this is like kind of a joke online, but like the Dalmatians killed my parents, you know, origin story, like the idea of the origin story, the idea that you would have experiences that you turn into traits as you learn lessons from them that are either, like you said, that they're either persecuting you from inside your mind or they are, you know, giving you some safety or security or whatever, um, or an explanation for your life or your desires or whatever it is. It's just such a, it. it's a thread that goes through so much 20th century storytelling. The idea that what storytelling is for is describing how we developed into what we are mm-hmm. and why. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a fascinating thing that even if there are some things that I think like, well, Freud, I believe you're (laughs) wrong about that. You know, like put a little (laughs) X in the, uh, in the margins of my copy. Um, At the same time, that idea that the part of storytelling is for understanding how we came to be what we are. It's almost impossible to overstate how, influential that is Mm -hmm. and how much it doesn't seem to be how things were before like Mm -hmm. what storytelling was perceived to be you know even quite recently in the same tradition
0: yeah well and can you talk a little bit more about that like what you see it as being before
1: oh well like um like Jane Eyre would be an example of a book where in some ways there's the like destructive death drive or erotic drive are some sort of personified by external characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, you know, there's part where Jane is a child and she has these experiences and And yet the book never, as far as I can tell, I mean, other people could disagree with me the book never says, and this is the experience that Jane had mm-hmm. that made her unusually interested in her own dignity or that she yeah. learned that love meant this from her father or, you know, like whatever it is, it, it really doesn't try to make a causal relationship between her childhood experiences, mm-hmm. and her adult nature. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it has all the ingredients. It just doesn't bake that cake you know? It's <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, right. And
0: and what you're saying is that that is basically what, what psychoanalysis is all about. And so it, it seems to have had a profound influence on um, not just our understandings of ourselves, but the way we tell stories. And of course, psychoanalysis is its own form of storytelling. That's the whole, I mean, it's not the whole treatment, but it's a, it is, in my view, a big part of the treatment is like, you know, constructing a story of your own life or co-constructing a story of your own life with your analyst in a way that, um, makes sense to you and allows you to have perspective on it and allows you to, to move beyond it. But right. It's predicated on the fact that before, um, your life was kind of mired in your influences and you were, yeah, just the, the product of your, your history. And now through this storytelling, you can, you know, free yourself from, from that, entrapment I guess.
1: Yeah I uh, I was reading the Wikipedia page about um, civilization its discontents <laughs> and it says like well you know of course since it's written in 1930 like a lot of his ideas come from I don't even know if the words emotional response really covers it but like the emotional slash, slash intellectual cultural response to World War One. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of forces asking people to distance themselves from the instructions of society to not just say like, oh, I want this and I'm told I want it by society. Like, I want to be a warrior. This is what being a warrior means. And then it's like, no, it's not actually what being a warrior means and not in this context of industrialized warfare. It really means this other thing and that um, that you, you have to take a critical um, distanced kind of, relationship to what society's messages are Mm -hmm. Um, and that seems like um, again like the once the 20th century really gets underway the idea that you're supposed to read society's messages toward you critically like that everyone everyone from every part of society as far as I know has some sense that there should be a distance between yourself and what you're being told you should be Mm-hmm. and that, that it's necessary to free yourself, but it's necessary to even have a sense of self at all. Yeah. Um, and obviously Freud's, what is it, nephew, um, Bernays, like just, you know, a mass, mass advertising culture, like is part of that need to distance yourself from what you're being told. Yeah. Um, but again, like, I don't think that that predates him that much. Like it just seems like one of those ways that Freud's thinking style became everyone's thinking style.
0: (laughs) That's so, that is so interesting. I mean, the the thing that it's making me think of in this particular text, I mean, it's not um, a response to mass media, but there's like that extended portion where he takes as a starting point. um, The, the dictum to love thy neighbor as thyself, which has just been, you know, in his view, taken on board without question. And he, basically, um, parses it to the level where as you're reading the text, it becomes very hard not to see it as absurd. Like, yeah. Why, why ever would somebody love a stranger, um, more than they love themselves, a person who they, you know, who who they need to protect in order to live? Why would they, why would they love? So anyway, and, um, so I feel like in that, long section he's kind of modeling exactly what you're talking about which is taking a critical approach even to the most basic um assumptions that the world has been constructed upon um, in order to more fully understand the underlying mechanisms of what's going on and what this dictum is trying to usher us to do or be
1: yeah yeah um Another side of it, though, is the figure of the psychoanalyst, which I think um, this was this was um, something that I was talking about in the Christopher Pike episode, actually, which is kind of it. Just that they're these you know teen thrillers from the eighties and nineties, and um, it was really striking to me how culture had changed in favor of self identification now. And reading these books, I was thinking, like, wow, they don't let the characters self identify in any way, in ways that teenagers now, I think, assume that they would be allowed to, even encouraged to, understand themselves and identify their own qualities. Um, But I think that 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 sense that not only should you read your own stories critically, but that you also kind of need an editor to tell you whether you got it right or not. Like uh, in the psychoanalyst, that somebody else will ultimately tell you when you've achieved kind of sanity or like a healthy, or you need somebody to mediate between yourself and And yourself. And yourself. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, in, in an ideal world, the patient, um, you know, is the one who ultimately understands that the, uh, treatment is complete, but right. There's like the, the I mean, grown, grown, what, what grows out of the concept that our minds are total mysteries to us, which is, I think like the most revolutionary aspect of Freudian psychology, um, is the necessity for an onlooker to help make sense of what it is that's going on. And yeah, I don't know. It's very true to my experience when I, sometimes I like am in a fight and I'm like, I truly don't know what's happening. I don't know why I'm saying the things that I'm saying. And, um, you know, it takes somebody with perspective and distance um, and, you know, a lack of emotional investment and in the outcome um, to be able to enter and make sense of, of the situation and what's going on. But yeah, that's a—it's a revolutionary concept that that a person who you know nothing about, who's just listening to you for whatever minutes and then hours and years on end, um, can make more sense of your mind for you than often you can yourself.
1: Yeah, it's and it, its kind of relating to like the question of whether human neutral is an individual or a person among people, mm-hmm. um, where the the object of analysis is an individual but it's happening in community with the analyst you know the idea sort of the central idea of this is that that there's this paradox of civilization that we create it and it destroys us
0: but but that we still need it
1: you know yeah. i don't
0: yeah it doesn't seem to me that he, he's arguing against uh the existence of civilization so much as explaining how it could be this thing that we construct and need doesn't bring us the happiness that we think we want it to bring us.
1: Yeah. It's just so interesting that, that feeling of like, just not being that happy. It's just like absolutely baked into the whole premise of modern life. Yeah. It's just confusing to pursue what the causes could be. And some of the causes I, I think some of the causes he's totally right about. And then some of the other causes, I don't know, some of the other books that you can read from, you know, soon after this, like Nightwood is another one. And Nightwood is um, the Juna Barnes book that we already did an episode on. And um, I mean, she's right to be unhappy because society is really cruel and judgmental toward gay women trying to live independent full lives and live in the arts, like all of these things, she's, she's right to be miserable and her misery, isn't something that's, um, that could be analyzed individually because there isn't actually a way that she could get to a happy state while her society kind of hates her, mm-hmm. and I think that that's almost one of the um, the challenges. I don't even want to quite say flaws, but the challenges of thinking of happiness or unhappiness of civilization as happening to individuals, mm. as opposed to like big tides of tides of circumstance that could make a person be right to despair Mm -hmm. and that health is actually not possible in some circumstances, like mental health, let's say, is not Mm -hmm. possible in some circumstances. And I guess that's kind of what he's saying in general is that mental health may not be possible in the circumstances of living in society at all. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. There's that, I mean, I want to see if I can find it, Um, but there's that passage toward the end where He's basically positing that, um, yeah, uh, that civilization sometimes asks of us more than we are capable of doing. So there's this passage um, where he's talking about the cultural superego and uh says it it doesn't trouble itself enough about the facts of the mental constitution of human beings it issues a command and does not ask whether it is possible for people to obey it and assumes a man's ego is psychologically capable of anything that is required of it and i feel like this passage starts to get at what you're talking about which is that um you know, the, the price for the security and stability and protection of living in community with others, which is what he's arguing is the, the necessity for civilization is that sometimes the, these dictums that are placed on us in response are just like, (laughs) so, so painful that we actually can't, um, meet them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that, that's seems like World War One is one of those examples where it's like, nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted it to be like that. Nobody wanted their role in it to be what it was. And yet no one was able to stop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's so, um,
0: I mean, this book, it's so ominous, how close this book comes out to the start of the next war. And it just feels so prescient what he's writing about, um, how strong our death drives are, our drives toward aggression and how our aggression needs to go somewhere and if it's not in then it's out and one of the ways he describes early in the book aggression turning outward is um against different groups of people um and yeah the the, I mean yeah it's such a it's such a like chilling uh end of this book I think coming at the time that it does um yeah yeah but who can foresee with what success and with what result. And then, yeah, we know, we know what happens next. So.
1: Um, yeah. I, I got more stuck on the things that he was saying about people sort of turning against themselves and the, the feeling of anxiety or shame or guilt all the time um, for essentially not um That even if you think selfish thoughts, you'll punish yourself for them because you're not, or even if you're, even if you know that your interpretation of whatever's happening is not the broad society wide one, you'll punish yourself for not conforming. Um, But it's true that the other side of that is what if you don't? Like, what if you actually just let your drives go free Mm -hmm. and just how massively destructive those are? when people actually do that. Yeah. Um, which he doesn't really, he doesn't really spell out there's one part that he kind of spells out like how much happier are we because of medicine? Like, sure. Maybe we're a bit happier, but then maybe we're actually not as much happier as we think just because all of our children are alive and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and yeah I,
0: right. It's such an, and he, then the, right. He's like, well, yeah, we can talk on the telephone to, far-flung relatives would have ships hadn't been invented. They wouldn't have even gone there in the first place. They would just be near.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. I was thinking about it alongside um, like Picasso or Cubism, which is another, it, it seems to me like a way of thinking about other people's societies, you know, like Picasso could see flea market finds of various statues and bits and pieces from other places like, you know, cultures in Africa, and he wouldn't know anything about them. He wouldn't know anything about the culture that produced the work. It would just be kind of there. And it was the result of colonialism and nobody around was necessarily all that curious or interested. It's just an object with a set of aesthetic properties that he was like, oh, I'll just make something up. This Mm -hmm. probably means something magic. Because it came from Africa, I don't really know. And like curiosity is impossible in the framework of colonialism, anyway. Like the the kind of curiosity that that would get beyond the point that he's like, well, here's a statue. I'm going to invent cubism. Um, and I think that there's a way in which this text is similar to that invention mm-hmm. of cubism, mm-hmm. which is like it's an offshoot of both the psychological state of um, colonialism and. Just the material uh, circumstances of colonialism, where you get a certain amount of information about how other people live, but it it's impossible to make meaningful context. Yeah, you just have to make up the rest of it. Mm -hmm. You're also being empowered to do so by being told, like, well, what you have is civilization, and what they have is just like I don't know, magic or something, right? A bunch of nonsense. Yeah um because that's sort of the underpinning of colonialism and i um i have this idea that that that's sort of one of the things that is it's like the underground lake of this text mm-hmm. is the idea that that he doesn't quite know how people are living in societies that are not quote unquote civilization yeah yeah where, where they don't have telephones but they also don't live far apart And he doesn't really know if they're happier or not. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't really have a way of finding out. Yeah. Um, So he's just making a series of guesses that are mostly about, like, there must be a different way to live than the way that he personally perceives people living all around him. Right. Right. And it may have happened in the past, it may happen in the future, it may happen on a different continent, but there must be something else other than this particular quality of unhappiness. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Yeah, no, it certainly doesn't have the the ring of a very involved anthropological study about it. There's just this like kind of vague primitive people. Anytime you read like primitive, it's like, oh God, Freud,
1: No. <laughs> It's not great. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And, but I just, I think, um, you know, it almost, I feel like, uh, usually when I read him in, you know, doing that kind of thing, I almost take it like a, like he's doing a thought experiment more than saying something that's actually factually Accurate. He's almost right. It's exactly what you said. He's like doing a a kind of hypothetical thought experiment about what would it be like if um, you know people weren't bound together in the way that I see them bound together in uh, you know whatever early twentieth century Vienna. Um, But yeah, I I don't think that taking him literally in those um, sections is is fruitful and and definitely gives him too much um credit i would i would say but i think you know i f- i feel like the the way that he um yeah i f- i feel like the thought if, if you almost read it as a fairy tale or thought experiment i feel like i i can become incredibly engaged in the sort of intellectual work that he's doing but right if you read it from a colonialist context it's you know you're, you you want to urge urge him to um, actually just stop stop, and and do the research that he needs to do in order to speak knowledgeably about um, the reality of other possibilities.
1: Yeah. And then also it's like, uh, I'm not sure that I would be thrilled to read his anthropological, you know, like if, <laughs> like I don't really want to know what Picasso actually thinks. Yeah. You know, about various, like I'd rather know what Picasso thinks about what he's actually perceiving. And mm-hmm. similarly with Freud, like I don't I don't think it discredits it as, you know, as you're saying, it's like the thought experiments or fairy tales or sort of pushing on what he perceives and figuring out which parts of these things are necessary and which things are just contingent. Um, that seems more valuable than whatever form of anthropological work he could have actually done
0: yeah i think it's
1: like that that from where these people were in europe they are getting all of this new information but but they really aren't in a position to actually perceive it Mm -hmm. sort of um in in context they can only perceive it in their own context yeah right right like a text that would come from a lot of like a big emotional need from his side mm. like a, a feeling of um, I guess of coming to a point in his own life where he maybe doesn't feel that it's as possible to escape himself <laughs> as, mm. as I don't know like if you're young and you think like oh you can just change your circumstances and things will get better and then at some point you realize you can't really escape yourself it feels mm-hmm. like a text of a person who's discovered he can't escape himself.
0: It's like, why why am I so unhappy?"
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I doubt that it's possible to reach adulthood in any human context without um, feeling that you're somewhat at war with yourself. Mm. like that the needs of the group yeah. versus the needs of the individual are always going to be tangled up inside your head. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that way. <laughs> I just have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that, that, that idea, like, are, are these things unchangeable or are they changeable? Like that you were saying before that, um, the part of the point of the psychoanalysis is that they are somewhat changeable. You can kind of understand what you're doing and why. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, in that way, it's like a very interesting book to try to
0: square with his mission as a psychoanalyst, which is fundamentally to like free people because it, yeah, there's like something very pessimistic, obviously about this text. It's like, well, Okay, I'll I'll try to help you understand yourself so you can be free of the strictures that, um, you know, the shape of your upbringing has placed on your psyche, and yet you can only be but so happy because you have to live in community with other people, and this great sacrifice that I've just laid out is thus required. So, yeah, it's a. Uh, it doesn't leave us in a particularly <laughs> hopeful or optimistic place. The end of this text, I would. I would say. Um well, like but, you just said yeah. before, how
1: much it it really does feel like not just a post-World War I, but an immediately pre-World War II text.
0: Yeah. And in fact, I s the that last line that I that I read, I believe um the footnote in my version says that it was added, uh yeah, the final sentence was added in 1931 when the menace of Hitler was already beginning to be apparent. So this yeah. is like at the kind of germination of the the war uh, and the Holocaust that he was writing, writing this and even amending it a little bit more to reflect the ominousness of yeah. what was going on at the time. Yeah.
1: <sighs> yeah, it's definitely um, like when you think about what is wrapped up in the word discontents, Um, it's a lot of behavior that um, I think we try to distance from the word civilization. Mm. Like we don't want to think of civilization as including the Holocaust. We want it to be something that's an aberration or like a mistake that we could understand and not do that kind of thing. Yeah. As opposed to part of the nature of being in a civilization at all that Yeah, that um, that the scale of action could be unstoppable. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. The nature of being in a civilization and also the nature of being a person. I feel, I do think that his um, conviction that aggression is such a big part of our psyches is really valuable because yeah. What do we get from denying that only, only (laughs) more tragedy. I mean, it's only by, by acknowledging this and, figuring out how to work with destructive impulses in ourselves and in our culture more broadly that we can try to counteract them. It's hard to counteract something you're denying exists.
1: It's true. And I think that that the reframing of the urge as belonging to the person who has the urge rather than the thing that the other person deserves. (laughs) Like, I think that that's the way that it would be framed before. Mm-hmm. It's just that those people need to be squashed or, and, and I think that this is, this is also something that happens in a libidinous urge. Um, does the desire arise from the attractive person or does it arise from the person looking mm-hmm. at the attractive person? And um, I think that that was probably has never been less stable in the 20th century Mm -hmm. the question of whether the urge arises in the person who feels the urge or it arises from the person who's in whatever way the the uh the person who will be the recipient of of the action um that's such an
0: interesting framing
1: yeah uh because i don't think that we settled it (laughs) i don't think that we're at ease about that question um but I think that it's sort of in play that maybe you don't cause desire by wearing a short skirt. Mm-hmm. as opposed to you know, I think that in earlier texts in this tradition, I think it seems much more settled that the person the person who gets um, destroyed caused it by whatever. Oh, sorry. this just successful. Really badly. What? No, this <laughs> not at all. I'm like thinking more thoughts that I can say. It's
0: just, I feel like it, reading for it inspires that feeling in me. I just it's like, oh, I understand it as I'm reading it. And then it makes my mind go in all these directions. And um, it feels so exciting. And then after it, I'm like, wait, what just happened? Yes. Why <laughs> articulate what happened? How do I even summarize what I just read and understood as I was reading it?
1: Yeah. I, I have so many notes and then I'm looking at them and thinking the same thing you said originally, which is like, no, it's not quite that it's, it's also the opposite of that.
0: Yeah. And it's, so, um, I don't know. I mean, it's funny because throughout this entire text, I mean, you know, Freud had his grandiosity, of course, but in this particular text and in others, he's so, um, he keeps saying over and over. I don't know if you, if this struck you too, but he keeps saying over and over, I know I'm not saying anything original. This is all very banal. I'm just repeating things. Everyone already knows. And then at the same time, I feel like my mind being blown and being stretched in all these different directions. And I like read to try to keep up with the next little turn or move that he's Mm -hmm. doing and the way that he's building on what he just said or inverting it. And, um, and then he's like I know I know you know all this already and I'm like no 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 <laughs> I do not so just keep going <laughs> totally yeah oh, well there was just something I mean you touched on it earlier so I don't know if it's worth um bringing back at this point but uh, I think his idea is very interesting that the superego sees more that you know the superego internal inside our minds sees more than the uh, external authority figure does. Yeah. which is to say that you know if you do something bad if your if your only worry is not being punished by an external authority figure uh it's only if you do something bad that it's a problem because then you can be caught but when this authority figure is taken inside of you as your super your punitive superego as you were saying before the thought itself the desire to do something uh bad you know quote bad immoral um is a punishable offense because the superego can see it. They they can't they can't just see what you do, it can see what you think. And that's um I don't know. It's a very, yeah, it's a it seems so right to me. Um,
1: it does seem right. And it also seems like an obvious source of that desire to offload the blame onto the person that you did the bad thing to. <laughs> as yeah. opposed to own the urge yourself.
0: Yeah. Well, it's so understandable why it's tempting to offload the blame onto that person because then the cycle is complete. They, they're they like truly holding this aggression for you. You don't have to hold it anymore yourself. Exactly. If it's their fault. They provoked it and they basically did it to themselves. So you can just kind of like, you know, barf the aggression onto them and then uh, back away and feel, feel freed. as opposed to, right, if it's coming from you, then you still have to grapple with and hold it yourself which is um
1: very uncomfortable absolutely yeah and that also um i think it's part of the the psychoanalytic relationship between the um the two people Mm -hmm. where it makes sense that it wouldn't be the same as just doing the same thinking inside yourself because there wouldn't be somebody there to, to witness, like, are you actually just fully um, assigning the blame for your own urges onto other people? You know, like saying it out loud or saying it to another person, it seems like it actually changes the the nature of what you're doing.
0: Totally. Which is also what makes it so remarkable to me that basically psychoanalysis originated by Freud analyzing himself. Like he actually did just, do it to himself i'm like
1: i don't know how you
0: how you did that at first um
1: well so one last thing that we haven't talked about yet is his idea of the oceanic feeling mm. um, which is just for listeners who maybe didn't just read this uh, the oceanic feeling is um, a feeling of sort of limitlessness or um like dissolution of the self into something larger um which he says a sort of like the basic urge that underlies religion the desire to kind of like be one with god mm-hmm. um and he says that it, it's sort of based in the feeling of the baby in the arms of the parents where the baby doesn't feel that that there's a separation between themselves and and their parent um and the the satisfaction of need and the feeling of a need are are unified in yeah his idea of this baby. Um, But he also says that he doesn't feel it himself. Hmm. And it, um, it makes me wonder if his experience of self is somehow a little unusual because he, Hmm. he really wants a lot of archetypes. He doesn't want the answer to be fundamentally different for different people. Mm
0: -hmm. But I think
1: in our era now in the 21st century, especially just with, the idea of neurodiversity um, as sort of a human neutral and not as not madness, but you know, the, the people ought to be essentially different in various yeah. ways. I just wonder if there's something, uh, you know, in some, I, I really am not trying to diagnose him by the way, <laughs> with anything. I'm more <laughs> like, I think that it ought to be true that there are many ways for people to experience sense of self. Yeah. And I just wonder if Freud had one that was like, farther off center.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I've read, um, there's this uh, um, psychoanalyst, and scholar, Joel Whitebook, who wrote a biography of Freud, which I read as I was um, writing my book. And he basically writes about how um, Freud had a very difficult childhood himself in a lot of ways. He had, I want to say, a brother who died, his mom in response was very depressed, possibly went away to like a sanatorium for part of his young life. And, um, in white books estimation, Freud developed a very kind of like rigid phallocentric personality and a defense defen- defensive view of his relationship with his mother, where he basically idealized her because he wasn't equipped to, um, process on on his own uh the kind of disappointments and even traumas of their relationship and so yeah i think you know in again in white books estimation this uh limited kind of self where he grew up really fast and was just like i'm a man um also paved the way for him to create the works of genius that he did but there's there's like Parts missing, you know, missing in his analysis of the relationship between not just fathers and their children, but mothers and their children, um, his his like understanding of women. And, you know, who who knows kind of what else uh, was the price of this, his own like childhood challenges that he didn't necessarily fully analyze in their entirety
1: yeah but even the just even asking the question of like why am i like this Mm -hmm. did i have an experience that made me like this yeah but even that is so groundbreaking as opposed to just thinking i should not be like this yeah um which uh like just starting with why as opposed to should I, you know, is this good? Is it bad? Yeah. It's like you said, it's like, it's a work of genius, even though it also, sometimes I was definitely putting little X's and like, (laughs) no, Freud, no, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I also think that saying like, oh, well, Freud was wrong about blah, blah, blah is also kind of a cliche in itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It, It feels to me like it's sort of Um, not, not that it wastes time, but it's like, yes, of course he was wrong about certain things. He was writing a hundred or more years ago. There have been theory. He, he revised some of his own theories. There have been analysts who came after him. It's an evolving discipline and like every discipline is, is like this. And I don't know, it just, to me, the stigmatization of Freud is so severe sometimes that I sort of in a psychoanalytic way, wonder what underlies it and what discomforts are being provoked in people that, um, you know, that this reaction comes about where they have to like throw away the entire discipline of psychoanalysis because not 100% of the, uh, beliefs or dictums that Freud put forth, um, continue to hold water a hundred years later. Like it is, yeah, it's it's imp- his writings are imperfect. His beliefs are are imperfect, but there's a lot that I think we get a lot out of um, that we didn't have before he came along.
1: I agree. I I think that um, reading this also as like a process document, kind of like um, a you know uh, Socratic dialogue with these ideas. I. I hadn't realized how interesting I would find his style. Um, I think I I read this like maybe when I was in high school Mm. and um, then just coming back to it as an adult and having more context for it. um, It's just interesting that he sort of grammatically makes claims, Mm. but in the context of his writing, it's more like he's in dialogue with claims
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so well put. I mean, I just, I find him like a relentlessly curious writer and yeah. I mean, it's like something in, you know, I've taught, write Nonfiction and fiction writing uh, uh, in college. And I feel like the thing that is really hard, but that uh, we talk about with basically everything impressive that we read is the way that um, the writer is like, Allowing the reader into a journey of discovery and isn't just stating something they know, but allowing the reader to explore with them and maybe writing into a space of unknowing as opposed to just like figuring it all out beforehand. And I feel like Freud is an amazing model of that. Like he genuinely seems in almost everything I've read that he writes to be like posing a question to himself and then just like pushing it absolutely as far as as it will go. And again, yeah, sometimes it involves these thought experiments that um in the light of 2021 can read as a bit unseemly, but as intellectual labor, I find it incredibly um impressive. Just like how it's like, he's like taking uh, an object and just like holding it to the light in every possible angle until he feels like he yeah, he's like fully understood it to the best of his capacity.
1: And I think that's I think that's cool. All right, that's it for our episode on Freud. Thank you to Jessica for joining me and to Adam Bear for our music, and to all the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. Uh we love to hear from listeners, so please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts or tweet us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or write to us at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks very much and goodbye till next week.